When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed, cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said, my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, hello, welcome. This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby. And I'm your host, Liv, here with quite the horrible cold right now that I can hear more and more as I hear myself in my microphone. Wow. My favorite timing too, because I took off two weeks unpaid from my job just so I could get so much podcasting stuff done. But I've been sick since day one. So guess how much I've gotten done? Not as much as I would like. 
Anyway, I'm sorry to rant to you right off at the top, but thankfully for my stuffy-nosed self, I was unexpectedly able to record the live episode at Fan Expo. I'm quite proud of this one. I'm definitely getting my stride when it comes to speaking in public, and I was only awkward at the beginning. So I'm so happy to be able to share it with you and to not have to record half an hour's worth of show while taking breaks to blow my damn nose. Thank you so much to all of you who came out to see me at Van Expo. Thank you to those who bought some merch or just came to say hi. Extra thank you if you came to my live show. And honestly, those of you who were just there at Fan Expo and didn't know I'd be there but were fans, man, you made my day. And a bonus thank you to those of you who couldn't make it but reached out in support. I truly have the nicest listeners. You're going to find that I jumped straight into things um, in the recording, and that's just because I had a sort of a rocky start where I forgot to um, introduce myself until, you know, at the very end and fun things like that. So what I did start with um, was a land acknowledgement, and I wanted to share that and then everything that follows. And with that, I give you the Fan Expo Live episode. Is it spring yet? Flowers, bees, and predatory seasonal gods. Before we do anything else, let's just get straight to what's really important, where we are. Um, I do want to acknowledge that we're here today on the traditional and unceded territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh First First Nations people. Um, It's always important to say that, but right now, as the Wet'suwet'en people are fighting for their territory, I think it's extra important in these kind of situations to really acknowledge that, especially in a city and a province like this. Today, I've also decided to keep to a theme uh, in recognition of the Indigenous peoples by covering Greek and Roman, so not so much, but stories of nature and transition. My podcast is always Greek and Roman, so it was sort of the closest I could do to that. Um, So today, in my second ever live episode, I'll give you, is it spring yet? Flowers, bees, and predatory seasonal gods. Before we dive into these stories of nature and transition, I want to provide everyone with a warning. Those, who, those of you who know my podcast will be well aware, but to those of you who don't, thank you for coming. But most importantly, I want to explain one thing and provide a bit of a trigger warning. Many, if not most, of Greek and Roman myths contain what is typically described as seduction or kidnapping, but what really is sexual assault. While other sources of mythology tend to treat these like with kid gloves or to provide weird and troubling euphemisms and misrepresentations of how women were treated then, I don't. That's the point of my show. I love the myths, but I also am going to be honest with you. The gods were deeply, horribly predatory and prone to assaulting women, nymphs, and even goddesses. It's rarely treated as traumatic or even problematic at all because it's the way it was. But also, ancient Greece was very much a patriarchy where men controlled everything and women were barely people. They were property. So while I do tell the truth, I also have to treat these instances with humor and disdain for the gods. I'm not making light of sexual assault. I'm an angry feminist. That's what the show is. But in order to express the widespread and troubling thing, (laughs) the widespread and troubling, how, excuse me, I'm just going to get all caught up in my words. In order to express how widespread and troubling this was in ancient Greece, I do have to treat it with a level of absurdity and sarcasm. In case you haven't already been made very clear, my show is scripted too. I'm not very good off the cuff. This is the way it is in my regular show. It's just a lot more obvious when I'm in front of so many people. But with that note out of the way, let's dive right into the lunacy that is Greek and Roman mythology. Our first story begins with a woman named Kyrene. 
She was a naiad, a nymph, who preferred to spend her time out of the house. She didn't like the typical women things. She wasn't fond of weaving or spinning or, you know, the household things that the ladies do. No, she didn't like those. She preferred to be outside in nature, like a boy. She would roam around hunting wild beasts with the explanation that there were flocks that needed to be protected. See, women must explain such things where men just to go around and do it and have it all be normal. As it always is in these cases, one day while Kyrene was minding her damn business, being a woman with free will who didn't feel bound by society's expectations, she caught the eye of a god. In this case, thank the gods, it wasn't Zeus, but his son, Apollo. Apollo is also a problematic fellow who typically causes the ruin of people he finds attractive, but he's not quite as bad as his father. Small victories we have. Apollo notices Kyrene and takes a liking to her. Particularly, he spots her while she's wrestling a lion. Wrestling a lion. He's impressed and he calls upon the centaur Chiron to witness the feat and tell Apollo about this girl. This girl who was wrestling a lion. Chiron, it seems, just happened to live in the area, so I guess he'd know more about this woman. You never know with Greek mythology. Frankly, it's not clear what Chiron really has to do with it, but he's in the story anyway. Apollo asks Chiron what the girl's name is, and hey, would she make a good wife for me? And by wife, he means woman to have sex with and then either accidentally kill or just forget about. Chiron, in response, kind of laughs awkwardly because he knows Apollo's intentions and that it doesn't really matter what Chiron has to say. He's going to do something with the girl. But he does tell Apollo that he foresees Apollo bringing Kyrene to a fancy garden of Zeus and making her the queen of a great city. He says that Hermes will act as, and this is a quote from my source, man midwife. And in doing so, Hermes will birth Kyrene and Apollo's baby, which they'll name Aristeus, and then bring him to the Hare, the hours, the goddesses of the seasons, so they can feed him nectar, which is god juice, and ambrosia, god food. This essentially means that Aristeus is going to be super important when he grows up. Apollo is into the whole plan, and so off he goes to have sex with Kyrene, an example of the giant question mark that is Greek mythology. Did she consent to this? Like, in any way? Did he kidnap her? Did she fall for him? And maybe it was nice and romantic. Probably not, because that's what the gods did. Apollo takes Kyrene off to a city in Libya, which he then names Kyrene after her. Ancient Libya accounts for much of North much of northwestern Africa, not necessarily what we think of as the country Libya now. Right now, in my regular podcast, I'm covering a lot of things that take place in the city of Carthage, which is called ancient Libya, which is modern Tunisia. It's all very confusing with the ancient world. But in the city that Apollo names after Kyrene, they quickly get to business, and Kyrene quickly gives birth to Aristeus, just as planned. When Aristeus grows into adulthood, two stories emerge, but I want to tell you about the one about bees and I'll keep to the right page. You see, Aristeus is the god of a great many things, but the one we're concerned with today is beekeeping. It's said that he even invented it to begin with. But when one day, his bees all mysteriously die, and he goes to seek his mother's help. He's very distraught about his poor bees, and he's prepared to do whatever he needs to in order to prevent further deaths. And it's a good thing, too, because what Kyrene tells him is that he must do something that is no easy task. 
Kyrene tells her son that Proteus, the wise old man of the sea, is the only person, somehow, a man in the sea, the only person who can tell him how to prevent more mass deaths of his bees. Doesn't always track in Greek mythology. But the thing about Proteus is he's not easy to talk to, nor is he overly eager to offer help to just anyone. Proteus, the old, original, wise man of the sea, is kind of crotchety. He doesn't like talking to people. And he also has the ability to transform himself endlessly in order to, in order to avoid being actually forced to speak. He can just spin around and become every different object imaginable, so he's really hard to grab onto. Menelaus, king of Sparta, uh, husband of later Helen of Troy, also had to do this with Proteus on his way home. A lot of the old uh, the gods of the sea are like this. You really have to grab on and hold on tight while they just transform themselves into a million different things. But Aristeus loves his bees, so he is more than happy to try to figure this out with Proteus. He heads to where Proteus tends to hang out, and he locates him. He grabs on and he holds on for dear life. And finally, after many transformations, Proteus finally gives in and he tells Aristeus what he has to do. You need to sacrifice a bunch of animals to the gods, he tells Aristeus, and you need to leave their bodies out in the sun to rot. Come back in nine days and just give them a once over. Yeah, a lot of Greek mythological instructions are bizarre and often incredibly gross. But Aristeus listens to Proteus, and he does this very gross thing. And so when he returns to the bodies of all the sacrificed animals, after nine days of rotting, why, there's a swarm of bees inside of one. It's not horrifying at all. And the bees no longer, or he no longer has any trouble keeping his bees alive, because these ones were born inside of a nasty, rotting corpse. So I guess it's a win. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed, cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said, my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for the eligible bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast, 
on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The next story we're going to tell you, we, me, the next story I'm going to tell you is on the origins of a couple of different types of plants, the way the ancient Greeks believed these plants came about. So many of these things, or so many things, had their origins in the misdeeds of the Greek gods, but the origin of flowers and trees appears to be somewhat unique to the aforementioned god, Apollo. He's the star of today's episode, beginning with a young man named Cyparissus, who was beloved of Apollo. The god Apollo loved this man so much that he gifted him with a beautiful stag. Cyparissus equally loved his gift from the god because it was both from the beautiful god of music, poetry, and plague, but also who doesn't want a cool pet like a stag? One day in the heat of the summer, Cyparissus and his stag were enjoying some time in the woods. The stag lays down to relax. It's hot and he's a stag. Meanwhile, it seems, Cyparissus goes off to, I don't know, practice throwing his javelin. Seems like a poor choice of activity. And in the end, it turns out to be exactly that. Cyparissus throws his javelin and it accidentally hits his beautiful, beloved pet as it lays in the grass. He was not careful. Cyparissus is is absolutely inconsolable, just unable to handle his grief. He wants to die. Apollo tried to make his lover feel better, to feel like it wasn't his fault that this beautiful stag had been killed, but it can't be done. Instead, Cyparissus begs the gods to allow him to grieve forever. Ancient Greek mythology is nothing if not overly dramatic. So as the boy cries and cries, he begins to transform. As his energy drains from him, he continues. He, turns, he starts to turn a little green and then a lot green. Slowly and then not so slowly, Cyparissus, beloved of Apollo, as will become a theme, transforms into a cypress tree. Cypress trees are all over Greece and they're even now a symbol of mourning. Next, a young man named Hyacinthus, another lover of Apollo. Again, you get the idea. 
I've told this story on the podcast before, but it just fits really well with today's episode, so I'm going to tell it again. Apollo loves Hyacinthus, a beautiful youth, youth, Apollo only loves them beautiful, whose looks and charm have left Apollo completely and utterly smitten. Ovid tells us that Apollo loves Hyacinthus more than he loves any other man. But then, that may just be what Apollo tells all the young men. Hyacinthus is a prince of Sparta, a grandson of Lacedaemon, the founder of Sparta himself, and Apollo stays with him on the banks of the river Eurota and in the mountains of the Peloponnese. And one day, on those sexy riverbanks, Apollo and Hyacinthus strip off their clothes. Naked, Apollo and Hyacinthus anoint each other with olive oil, rubbing the ancient moisturizer into each other's smooth skin. And then, all naked and rubbed down with oil, they decide to have a contest to see who can throw a discus further. It's basically ancient frisbee, but naked and oily. Meanwhile, Apollo is not the only god in love with Hyacinthus. The man is seriously sexy and charming because he has not one, but two gods vying for his attention. The west wind, Zephyr, is also taken with with Hyacinthus. He too finds himself in love with this sexy Spartan. Back on the riverbanks of the river Eurota, though, Apollo and Hyacinthus have just stripped down naked and rubbed each other with olive oil, and the only logical next step is a competition for who can throw a discus further. I have to assume that discus contest contest here isn't only that. It must also include sex, because, I mean, honestly, they're both sexy and in love and naked and oily. So after what I can only assume is a session of hot sex, they throw the frisbee. Apollo throws first. He's a god, after all, so his throw is stellar. The discus flies high into the air. Hyacinthus is excited. He's eager to show off his own skill. So he runs to where the discus is flying. But... Zephyr has been watching. Zephyr has been watching, and he's a jealous, messy bitch. He blows his west wind at the discus as it flies high in the air, and it blows off course. He blows it at Hyacinthus, and tragically, awfully, it hits Hyacinthus in the head, and he falls motionless to the earth. Apollo rushes towards the lifeless body of Hyacinthus. He picks him up in his arms, trying to warm the body to stop the blood flowing from the wound in the boy's head. He uses what he knows, which, as the god of medicine, is a lot. But nothing works. It's too late. Hyacinthus is dead. Apollo, holding tightly to the body of Hyacinthus, cries out. He blames himself, his own hand having thrown the discus that ended his lover's life. But deep down, he knows it's not his fault, that they were simply playing a game with terrible, tragic results. Apollo chases after Zephyr, pursuing him into the mountains. He shoots arrows at the wind god, but it's no use. The damage has been done. So Apollo quickly gives up his desire for revenge and returns to mourn his love, Hyacinthus. As he cries over the beautiful body of Hyacinthus, mourning the man he loved so much, the blood that had spilled from Hyacinthus's head transforms on the ground beneath them. It no longer, it's no longer blood-stained grass, but deep purple flowers. But even these stunning flowers are not enough for Apollo, and so onto the petals he inscribes the words, I, I, the sound of a tragic cry, the sound he made when his beloved Hyacinthus died. But before you go thinking this is the first hyacinth, let me tell you, it's apparently something called a larkspur flower. It's just what they called, a, they called it a hyacinth in Greek, but it's not what we consider hyacinths now. So the story is pretty anticlimactic. 
But lucky, I've got one more. Our next and final story comes not from Greece, but from Rome. As I mentioned quite a bit in the podcast, the Romans had their own mythology, but it was very similar to the Greeks and often mirrored many of the more famous Greek myths. Most of their gods had Greek equivalents with the same personalities and most importantly, the same vendettas and feuds. But the story is none of those, it just happens to be Roman. Pomona was a nymph. Nymphs are inherently connected to the earth and nature. There are different types of nymphs and Pomona was a a woodland nymph a nymph of the forest. But it seems that Pomona wasn't as passionate about the forest as her fellow woodland nymphs. Pomona had a different passion. She lived to garden. Oh, did she love to garden. Pomona, excuse me, particularly (laughs) orchards and fruit orchards at that. They were her thing, her obsession. And she was good at it too. And good at pruning and grafting and all sorts of other fancy things that gardening that gardeners do that I'm absolutely not familiar with because I have half a dead geranium on my balcony and I haven't touched it since September. But this isn't about my lack of gardening skills. It's about Pomona's badass gardening skills to the extent that she becomes the goddess of fruitful abundance of fruit trees, of gardens and orchards. What a woman. Of course, every woman needs a man because we are not people, we are property. Pomona, though, did her best to avoid exactly this because she prefers to garden alone. She keeps herself away from the the men vying for her attention. But enter Vertumnus, the man most ardently in love with Pomona, in love, or just looking for a conquest, you decide. Vertumnus was the Roman god of seasons, of change, the god of plant growth, as well as gardens and fruit trees. With this comes the ability to change his form, just as much as needed. And Vertumnus uses that power as much as possible, especially in his attempts to convince Pomona to be with him. Sometimes he would change to get near her, disguising himself as someone she might need to interact with, a person delivering barley, or there to prune her plants. Vertumnus would use these opportunities to gaze at Pomona, but he was bothered knowing that she wasn't looking at him, the god of the seasons, but instead giving only half a glance to whoever she thought he was at any given time, someone merely in the background. Finally, Vertumnus comes up with another plan, because, of course, no is not an acceptable answer. One cannot simply say, no, I don't want to marry you. Women must marry, and men must force them if they have to. It's an awesome setup they had there. Patriarchies are great. Vertumnus's next plan was to appear to Pomona in the shape of an old woman by the Temple of Venus. That's the Roman name for the goddess of love, Aphrodite. This wise old woman that is really Vertumnus pleads with Pomona to marry the one that loves her, that she should set aside her arrogance, i.e. her simple desire to remain single. That's arrogance, you know. That if she does this, that there will be no late spring for her fruits, no strong winds to rip the blossoms off of her trees. But even this does not work because Pomona does not want to marry Vertumnus. And yet the story isn't finished. Finally, when he knows it isn't working, Vertumnus transforms himself back into his own form. At this point, he's ready to take her by force. He's fully prepared to assault Pomona right there and then, which would, of course, force her to marry him. 
But we're told that as soon as she sees his godly, true form, Pomona is so taken with Vertumnus that he doesn't need to force her at all. How very lucky. Instead, it seems this is enough to convince Pomona to marry him. And she does. A happy ending? It's supposed to be. But, I mean, it's gross and patriarchal. But therein lies the through line of Greek and Roman mythology. Women simply need to be convinced they'll eventually give in silly creatures. And that's really it. <laughs> that's all I have for you today. If you're interested in more stories like this, though, please subscribe to my podcast. In my podcast, I've covered a few similar stories to the origins of things, of plants and animals and all that, like the story of Apollo and Daphne, which is one that's similar to many stories of Apollo falling for someone, to ruinous results. In that case, it creates the laurel tree. There's also the story of Echo and Narcissus, or Hera's favorite guy, Argos, and the reason peacock feathers look like they do. Or you could listen to my early story, or early telling of the story of the kidnapping and assault of Persephone, which has been weirdly romanticized and is pretty gross, but it gave us the harvest seasons brought to you by a mother's severe depression over the loss of her child. It's a beautiful story. (laughs) But seriously, if you're... Of course, I have this part scripted even. If you're just being introduced to me today, you should go take a listen to the podcast. There are over 100 episodes now, including a full and detailed telling of both the Iliad and the Odyssey, where I completely lose my mind and excitement over those stories. I'm in the midst of covering the Aeneid now, which is all Roman, so it's something new and exciting. If it's not clear, I like to focus on the treatment of women in ancient Greece and the problematic nature of all of that. I really don't sugarcoat it, and I'm very blunt and usually swear a lot more. This script has a lot of scribbles when I realize just how open this space was and how much I probably shouldn't use the words I normally do. Uh, But there's only so much I can do. Anyway, normally I'm a little bit more showy with my language. Um, Thank you all for being here. This is crazy cool. I have lots of time for Q&A because even though I wrote a much longer script than the last time I did a live show, it's still not long enough. Um, So if anyone has any questions and then after the questions, I'll do this wonderful giveaway of all the free stuff I have. Any questions? Yeah. Ooh, how did I learn the pronunciations? That's a great question. There's a lot of Googling. I do have a degree in classics, so uh, I remember a lot of the ways my profs would pronounce things. That said, right now I'm actually taking another class at uh, UVic just for fun because I'm a dork. And then this prof will pronounce things differently than how I learned. And so it's very hard to know what's the true pronunciation, especially because modern Greek is not very similar other than in terms of the characters to um, ancient Greek. So you have to make a lot of guesses, and I do a lot of Googling, but then who knows if Google is even right. I just say it with confidence, and then everyone believes me. (laughs) Anyone else? Yeah. Are there any examples in Greek and Roman of women being treated as equals? No. (laughs) Um, There's some, like, fun versions where they're not treated awfully. There's a really fun play called The Lysistrata. It's meant to be a comedy, and it is hilarious, but it's where women decide that they want to stop the Peloponnesian War between the uh, Athenians and the Spartans by just giving up sex, and they believe, and are completely accurate in that if they decide that they give up sex until the men stop the war, that it'll work. And of course, in the play, it does work, and it's hilarious. So there's, there's versions where women have some sort of power and agency, but the thing is, is that, for the most part, the stories were told by the men, and so... I'm sure the ancient Greek women had a lot of stories they would tell between them um, that just didn't necessarily get written down because the women didn't really write. The only, as far as I know, the only proof of a woman having written things down that we still have is Sappho, who 
was her own sort of like a very separate kind of character from from what most of ancient Greece was. Um, so I think that there probably were a lot of those stories, but the biggest problem with what we have now from ancient Greece is that so much got lost. The only things that we tend to still have are the things that the monks later on decided that they wanted to copy down. Um, and monks were not particularly prone to finding good, strong stories of women. Yeah. Do I have any favorite myths or stories? I get asked this a lot and I, I sort of have different answers depending on the day. I love Medusa. Um, there's certain versions that make her a much stronger and much more sympathetic character than others. Um, the Roman poet Ovid tended to give women a lot of their due. Um, he recognized the trauma that women in mythology went through and told the stories uh, as traumas versus as something funny that the gods did. Um, so the story of Medusa in there tends to be one of my favorites. That said, I also love the Odyssey. It's not very pro-woman, but it's really fun. And Odysseus, while awful, is very entertaining. Anyway, thank you all so much for being here. Um, it's really cool. Thank you so much. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed, cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol the danger they endured. They said, my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for the eligible bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. 
with the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.